pray with me. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears and open our eyes, that we may hear what you have to say to us. Lead us into your rest and forgive us of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The classic movie, The Seventh Seal, by Swedish director Ingmar Bergman, tells the story of a disillusioned knight who has returned to Europe from the Crusades. At that time, Europe is being ravaged by the bubonic plague or Black Death that ultimately killed up to a third of Europe's population, 20 million people. The story is allegorically portrayed as a game of chess between death, clothed in a long black robe, and the knight. The title is a reference to the seventh seal in the book of Revelation, chapter eight, verse one. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven of about a half an hour. In the movie, Bergman wrestles with cosmic questions of evil, of misguided Christianity, crusades, corruption in the church, judgment, and the silence of God. For the purposes of this sermon, I want to appropriate the image of the game of chess, but this time as a cosmic game of chess between God and the enemy throughout human history. This gives us a lens through which to look at the history of God's work in the world, both, both at a global level and at the local, individual, or personal level. In our gospel text for today, Jesus is telling a parable the parable of the noble vineyard owner and his son, which has commonly been called the parable of the wicked vine dressers. This more accurate title of the parable of the noble vineyard owner underlines the fact that it is God who is the protagonist of the story, not the wicked vine dressers. The Jewish leaders immediately understood this parable as a direct attack against them. However, this parable teaches us lessons also at a local and personal level. Here in Matthew, the context in which Jesus is speaking is highly antagonistic and there is much animosity towards him. The scene takes place the day after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey and his cleansing of the temple when he overturned the tables of the vendors and money changers and drove them out of the temple. His action that day opened a window into his cosmic role as a God of holiness, justice, and healing. The children totally get it. They're crying out in the midst of the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. This is way over the top for the Jewish religious leaders who are besides themselves with outrage and indignation. They're spitting mad. They do not know how to respond to Jesus's righteous fury and the children's joyful chorus. I try to imagine the scene in my head. Did they try to grab the kids and tell them, stop yelling blasphemies in the temple? But by the next day, they have collected themselves and they're ready for Jesus when he returns. 
That day when Jesus enters the temple, they confront him. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus refuses to give them a straight answer. And he proceeds then to tell them two stories that culminate in a scathing judgment on the Jewish leaders. I wonder if the telling of this parable was cathartic for Jesus at some level, a reaction to the stubborn opposition that he experienced every step of the way from the scribes and Pharisees, his frustration with their unwillingness to open their eyes and ears and hearts must have been immense. Our parable of the noble vineyard owner has immediate applications in its critique of the religious leadership, but there's more. The story can also be interpreted at a cosmic level as an analogy of God's work in the world from the beginning of all time to its ending in some distant or not so distant future. One theme of the story is God's response to deeply entrenched evil. And it is surprising his response to violence and murder in this parable is not to fight violence with violence, as the Western church did in the Crusades, but instead, God, the landowner, turns anger into grace. He offers the vine dressers one last chance to give him his revenue and to respond obediently to his beloved son. God, the landowner, responds by making himself totally vulnerable in his love for these scoundrels. Yes, love, so much that he is willing to lose his beloved son. God's response is an incarnated message of grace in the person of his son. Another theme in this parable is that of the leadership in God's vineyard. The wicked vine dressers in the parable were unworthy leaders just like the Jewish leaders in Jesus's day. They had forgotten that they were just renters, not owners, and that God was the owner of the vineyard. Jesus turns directly to them and tells them that the kingdom will be taken from them and given to a people who produces the fruits of the kingdom. From an eschatological point of view, that is looking towards the end of time, he is also saying that he is the chosen cornerstone, even though the builders, that is the Jewish leaders, are rejecting him. That is, the cornerstone is the rock that holds the entire structure together of a building built out of stones. And as the cornerstone, what he's saying is that Jesus himself is the good news of God's saving work in the world, his work of salvation and atonement. He is the way the truth and the life. As the son, he is bringing the message of salvation. Salvation cannot be found in the legalistic teachings of the scribes and Pharisees. But this parable is also speaking into the cosmic flow of Christian history. The story of God's mission in the world. In this cosmic game of chess, there are many times in which evil seems to prevail and God's mission to fail. There are times of bad leadership in God's vineyard and the church must be renewed. There are times when God falls silent. There is an ebb and flow in global Christian history. 
I think that Jesus, as he was facing his crucifixion in just a few days, might have found hope and consolation in telling this story, a story in which God, the Father, brings in the kingdom at the end of time, and all ends well. But Jesus knew he had to first go through suffering and death for this to happen. As we look at the story of God's mission since the time of Jesus, it's easy to lose control or sight of the fact that God is in control. But God's work in history is to draw us and many and as many people as possible in relationship to him. This is what Jesus told his disciples to do. Bring people to him by modeling his love in community. It was his love that made the gospel message contagious by everyone. But by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another, he says in John 13, 35. It was a powerful message of love and atonement that the, that the apostles carried as missionaries to the four corners of the world. In the early church, the apostle Thomas traveled east to India. Other apostles went south to Arabia, Carthage, Ethiopia, north to Russia, west to Rome. There's even a French tradition in the church that says that three Marys of Jesus' entourage landed in southern France. The church in the east spread from Syria to Persia and on to China for centuries. In the eighth century, Eastern Christianity was a jewel of interreligious dialogue, theological discourse, and church growth, with missions and bishoprics extending throughout all of Asia, all the way to the Pacific coast. Then the Eastern Church, weakened by divisions, warfare, and the spread of Islam, declined and eventually collapsed in the 13th century. The early church in North Africa was key to the, the development of theology for the Western church, thanks to the legacy of scholars such as Augustine, Origen, Tertullian, and many others. Christianity sunk deep roots into Egypt and Ethiopia in its orthodox expression. Even the onslaught of Islamic mission did not manage to completely extinguish ancient Christianity in Ethiopia. The Orthodox Church has had an uninterrupted presence in Africa since its founding in the fourth century. There was a thriving church in Nubia, South Sudan, until the 13th century when it succumbed to Islam. This means that African Christianity is older than European, North American, or South American Christianity. That's a thought. Christian missions also went north and west into Europe from the time of the apostles. Paul and Peter were both martyred in Rome. Converts among the barbarian peoples spread Christianity into the heart of Europe. The Christianity, Christianity that developed in Europe was deeply institutionalized. It spread originally by conquest and mass conversion from the top down. As kings converted, they required their subjects to adopt their religion, whether they liked it or not. There's more to that story, of course. But then there was a 300-year lull in the global advance of Christianity, during which Christianity centered in Europe. But soon, thanks to the 16th century missionary movement of the Catholic Church, 
led by the Society of Jesus or Jesuits, Christianity once again became global. Catholic missions took Christianity to the Americas, to Africa, and to the East. In Angola and Congo, the Christian kingdom of the Congo developed into an indigenous and vibrant church. In the 16th century, Jesuit missions reintroduced Christianity into China. For a century, from the mid-16th to the mid-17th century, there was a vibrant Catholic church in Japan, 300,000 converts at its peak. The church grew in spite of terrible persecution with the help of the missionary outreach of little-known agents, Japanese Bible women, who evangelized and taught in private contexts in homes. They were immune to prosecution, as men were, and operated behind the scenes. And their work was tremendous. As the stranglehold of persecution tightened around the Japanese church, it seemed God had fallen silent. If any of you have not seen the movie Silence, based on Shuzako Endu's gorgeous novel by the same name, I encourage you to do so. It tells the story of this century in Japan. At this point, you can imagine in the game of chess, the enemy smirking to God. Check. Eventually, all Christian missions were banned from Japan and all Christian practices were forbidden. But the church was not extinguished. It just went underground for three centuries. The Kakuri Karishitan, or hidden Christians of Japan, preserved their faith in hiding. They were rediscovered in the 20th century. In the 18th and 19th centuries, the Protestant global missionary movement took off. Protestants of all stripes spread across the globe to spread the gospel. And now, beginning in the early 20th century, Christianity has been growing exponentially in southern continents. Since 2018, Africa is the continent with the most Christians. Christian mission is no longer from the West to the rest. Instead, it is mission from everywhere to everywhere. Christian immigrants and refugees from all over the world come to this country, bringing their faith that they share as missionaries to our de-Christianized society. We are standing at a very exciting time in history, especially in this country, where we actually have the privilege of the world coming to us here in the form of immigrants. The global church is among us. Back to our parable and the, and the question of leadership in God's vineyard. This quick historical overview has shown how there are ebbs and flows in Christianity in and out of certain parts of the world as history advances with God toujours, always in control. Sorry, I switched into print, that was toujours. Always in control with my global piece coming out. Um, in Europe and in Western churches, Christianity is in decline. Here, it's not in decline because of our immigrant population coming in and evening things out. But in this country, we know many churches in mainline traditions, Roman Catholics, the Episcopal Church, are shutting down for lack of membership. 
it seems that the leadership in God's vineyard is shifting from the global north to the global south. It's in the global south that we find the majority of Christians and the most vibrant forms of Christianity. But the encouraging note for us is that as these expressions of Christianity penetrate the local church here, the local society here, we can hope to see our own churches revitalized and strengthened. And I think it has already happened here at St. John's. This summer, we started the discernment and planning process in order to think ahead of how we will, will run the church, we, how we, together with God, <laughs> under God and the Holy Spirit, will run the church um, after the retirement of our dear priests. Second number. Obviously, I didn't edit myself carefully enough as I was writing that. The humanity comes out there. <laughs> so I invited, at that time, in the, in the summertime, I invited anyone in the church who had a heart for community and for service to join me in praying and reflecting and planning what our next year might look like. The little dream team that joined then began dreaming every week over lunch after prayer. It reminded me a little bit of the passage in Joel where God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions. There was one core insight that we discerned together in our praying and reflecting and planning together this summer. And I feel it is key not only to the vision of building and strengthening our community, but to our whole outreach and God's mission through us. And it was this idea of Sabbath. As we were thinking about the many things we could do, one person said, I don't think it is so important for us to do things together. I think it is important for us to be together in fellowship around a meal, to stop and pause and get to know one another. And another person added the idea of spending the Sabbath together, resting together on the Sabbath, being in each other's presence and in the presence of God. So let's then go back to our Old Testament reading for a minute, to commandment number four in particular, which I asked Macy to read the full, the full extent of Commandment number four, which is to remember the Sabbath. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them but rested the seventh day. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. In Genesis, God rested from his work of creation on the seventh day. The biblical meaning of the Sabbath day was to point to the ultimate rest we have in God, in our salvation. This was first modeled in the commandment given to the people of Israel in the desert. In addition to the Sabbath commandment, 
God commanded the people of Israel to have a Sabbath year every seven years when the Israelites were to let their lands rest, no sowing or reaping, but also to forgive debts. What an incredible act of faith God was asking them to do. Not sow, not reap, not plant crops. And every seven times seven years, every 50th year was the year of Jubilee when they were commanded to proclaim liberty throughout the land. And all the lands that were lost in debt payments were to be returned and debtors freed from slavery. This was a foretaste of God's kingdom of Shalom, ultimate rest, that was a pushback against the evil, greed, poverty, and exploitation of the nations around them. The shalom that he provides to us includes freedom, love, justice, community, care for one another, healing, reconciliation. This is revolutionary. And it was at the time that it was commanded to the Israelites. But unfortunately, when Israel entered the promised land, they disobeyed and did not keep the Sabbath years. And so they were sent into exile because all of the sins that flowed from not keeping the Sabbath and the Sabbath years, they lost fellowship with him and with each other. In the list of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath commandment stands as a hinge between the commandments concerning our relationship with God and those concerning our relationship with our fellow human beings. This is important. Our observing Sabbath rest affects both of these relationships, our relationship with God and with each other. I felt that the insight that we had this summer when we sensed that our community needs Sabbath rest was from the Holy Spirit. We are a community of people with demanding jobs, vocations, many demands on us from all parts. We all carry many burdens in addition to our work responsibilities, some involving friends and family members who are ill or suffering from mental illness. Uh, perhaps we ourselves struggle with, struggle with some of those things. Yet we live in a context that requires people to be high achievers and to work relentlessly. For us, for me, I know, it is hard to imagine what real rest looks like sometimes. This summer, there was a sense among us that in our desire to build community, we needed to seek to enjoy Sabbath rest together. If God consecrated the Sabbath and made it holy, what does that mean for us individually and as a community? How do we consolidate our relationships together so that we may model that ideal community of ultimate rest that Jesus exemplified. I'd like to challenge us all to think about these questions. What does Sabbath rest look like for you? What does it look like for us? What does it look like for our relationship with God? And what does it look like for us together as a community? If you have thoughts about these, we'd, I'd really like to hear them. You are all part of the dream team, but whether you know it or not, 
because we're all dreaming these dreams. Because we all belong to God. Some of the things that we, that you have already experienced and that we discerned that we felt were good for our community were the community lunch once a month. Next week will be our community lunch. Be ready to bring a dish to share with all of us. Um, small groups being together in smaller ways. Group events around food and hospitality, like the kitchen table that we had. And prayer times, like healing prayer once a month. These are beginnings of thoughts of how do we do Sabbath together. Um, apparently, there are different ways of thinking about the Sabbath. The Jewish concept of the Sabbath is very joyful. It is about celebrating together, eating, drinking, being joyful together. There are, other, there are other ways of thinking about Sabbath, and I think I grew up with the ones that the Puritans tended to uh, promote, which was study on Sunday afternoon. I always come back to that. But uh, I think we want to go for the joyful, the joyful <laughs> approach to Sabbath together, because that rest is something that we seek, but it's also a deeper community communion, fellowship with our Lord and with each other so that we can both draw to us those who want to understand and see and feel this community in a world that is very disconnected and very individualized. And then also so that we can be empowered to go forth as missionaries in our context, wherever it is, in work or in our neighborhoods. So brothers and sisters, we belong to each other. We are members of each other as a local family and as a church in a global communion of saints. There is a priesthood of all believers. We can all be priests one to the other. And so as we try to find ways to observe Sabbath together, I just want to reiterate that I feel that this will help us to draw close to each other, closer to God, and that it will help us to grow together in the community that God wishes for us to be.